Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the upcoming doctors, lawyers, entrepreneurs, it doesn't matter. We're here to talk about all the best and the brightest as they make their way to their dream careers. I'm your host, Jonathan Carr. Join me as we have a spectacular conversation with an equally spectacular person. You ready? Let's go. Hello, world, and welcome to The Upcoming, the perfect place to catch the best and brightest on their way to the top. Joining me now for The Upcoming's 22nd episode from Philadelphia all the way to Rolling Heights, California, this man is a screenwriter who is about to be taking the world by storm with ideas. And I hope to someday see him in the Oscars, the Golden Globes, whatever, just presenting uh, his work and his awards to the rest of us. So... This man has been on quite the incredible journey from working at Amazon to doing poker to coming out here and becoming a screenwriter and just seeing the joy that is film and just media, period, in the great Los Angeles. So, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I bring to you the great Mr. Daniel Asbury. How's it going, Dan? What an intro. I wasn't expecting all of that. Um, uh yeah, it, it has been a, a great journey, uh, and 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 hopefully, yeah, I, we can make it to the top of this thing, like you're saying, uh, and get in the business, get to the Oscars. Obviously, that would be amazing. Nothing I really have thought of until you just said that. Um, uh, but I like the positivity, man. I like it. Yeah, fantastic. I'm happy to hear that, man. So, listen, one thing that always happens in the upcoming is. I give an introduction, or let's let my I give an introduction, then let my guests introduce themselves. So, Dan, for the people who don't know, who and what exactly are you? So, uh, like you said, I'm from Philadelphia. Uh, I uh, I came out here to Los Angeles to pursue a career in film and in, in, uh, film by way of screenwriting. You know, I, I think that would be my ideal way to kind of get in the industry. Um, so before that, uh, you know, I was like into novel writing and that's kind of how I originally started, uh, I guess down the writing path, if you will. Um, finally got to a place where I thought my skill set, though not where I wanted to be, I thought that confident enough to like, uh, try my hand at this. And so, Moved out to Los Angeles about, I think it's my seventh month here. So I'm still pretty new. Um, and, yeah, I've been, been trying to just integrate within the city and get to know people like you, John, um, ever since. So, yeah. All right. just had to unmute myself so there be no distractions. So, yeah, that's great to hear, man. And it's really... It's really so interesting how you went from novel writing all the way up to screenwriting. So I got to know, who were, this was, and people got to know too, who were some of your inspirations? Who were some of your um, favorite authors? Anybody who just influenced you when you were going into novel writing? So I would say the first writer that kind of got my attention, well, actually it's the first book I ever read, was uh, Dean Koontz's Lightning. And mm-hmm. actually, no, no, that's wrong. Dean Koontz is the face, which, believe it or not, is about this, like, Tom Cruise-like figure that's, like, the most important person in Hollywood or something like this. 
And then it's like this horror, mystery, drama type of situation. But I read that maybe when I was like 13, and I was never into like novels at all. Like I was kind of like a dumb kid, right? <laughs> School didn't interest me. I should I should probably put it that way. School just didn't interest me. I wasn't engaged by it. Um, and I always heard this this idea that oh, you know, reading opens up uh, different worlds and. You know, you can be transported through reading, and I just thought that was bullshit. But for some reason, I just gave myself a challenge. Yo, read. Just open up a book. Just open up a book. And I happened to open up this book. And then I gave myself a challenge. Okay, just finish the book. I thought that was, like, such an accomplishment. John, by the end of this book, I am literally seeing the 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 pages. It's ridiculous. My mind, it, it really did just open up my mind in a way that I didn't, I was incomprehensible to me. And so I'm just blown away by the whole experience of reading this novel. Now, I had no idea that, that stories would come across in that format that vividly. Um, and so then it just stuck in my head that, like, wow, that is so cool to tell a story that way. And so I just eventually just kept reading and reading. And then this happened, um, you know, so I had a teacher that, you know, had an assignment, which was like, hey, write a, write a story, you know, like a short story, maybe hey, two paragraphs, right? And I started writing this story, and I just got so into it that eventually I kind of give her this this five-chapter thing that's just miles more than what she asked for, Right. But I just couldn't, I couldn't help myself from just writing. And it wasn't good or anything, but she was so blown away that she gave me this encouragement, like, wow. Like, kind of, that was actually entertaining. Like, thank you as a student for giving me that. And I was just so pumped up over that that I said, okay, I'm going to try to actually really learn how to write and do this and eventually try to write a novel. So that, that I guess that's how I started, you know, just, just as a kid or a young teenager reading, and then from Dean Koontz to some uh, uh, or Stephen King's uh, some like horror type of uh, novelist like that, and I guess that's that's kind of how it all began with me. It's really it's really just kind of breathtaking how a story is able to be told without even any pictures. Like the yes. author mm -hmm. is like creating the images for you in your head. The way it works, that's called that's, that's the power of imagery right there. Yeah. And so, the more you read, the more the more stories you read. What were some that like maybe shut you off or like told you like maybe this this story isn't going the direction I want it to? I just need to find which other ones. This is this isn't cool anymore. So so that's an interesting question because I was so taken by the idea of, of novel writing that my sense of story really wasn't developed when I, when I first started. Um, so I kind of accepted anything the author presented. So even if something now that I would go like, ooh, I don't know if that this character is quite working in a way that seems realistic, back then, no, no, I just believed, I just, I just, I guess, bought into any type of idea they presented. Uh, and so I really wouldn't say there was anything that kind of... Uh, well, once I bought a book or started reading a novel, there's nothing that really made me put the novel down. You know, I kind of just finish it. Uh, I always finish them. 
the only thing I guess would turn me off is like genre things. So I mean, I'm not reading like romances or anything like that at that age. Uh, yeah, and I guess I guess I had to go on that journey to discover my own personal taste and develop my sense in the story. So if I did have a problem with it, I could then express, okay, why didn't I like that thing? You know, uh, and that took me that took me a long time to get to that point where I was comfortable saying, oh, I disagree with what they did here. Um, yeah, I, I would say I'm more at that. I, maybe I got to that point. Maybe when I got to my twenties, and and I can't even really think of a novel I remember just reading and being like, yo, <laughs> this ain't it, you know? Because uh, I mean, I, I do what most people do. It's like I'll, I'll look at the synopsis, maybe read the first chapter, and if that gets me, generally the novel's going to work for me. You know, I understand. Yeah. Another thing that really just comes to thought when you're just putting together, here's what I don't like about a story and here's what I do like, and you put that into, like, your own story, you end up really just coming, looking back on it thinking, like, wow, this story really needs this, this, that, and this, but is not there right now. It's just one of the things that people call like the bad like first draft or the bad um first attempt. And so story that's one of the things that makes storytelling so difficult really. And but when it's all put together as it's all said and done, it's absolutely beautiful. So Dan, that leads me to this next question. When you were first starting out your novel writing where at one point were were you at any point let's put it like this, were you at any point just like like just tearing out pages, being like, "This is this is all garbage." Just leaving you at, but just kind of frustration and just like, how? oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Because with me, I tried to go like the short story route to kind of figure out how to write. Because I, I tried to write like the first draft of my novel very young, maybe the, maybe even eighteen, nineteen, right? And I can only ever get maybe one or two chapters in before I'm throwing the whole thing out. Like, yo, this is garbage. <laughs> and so then I tried to switch. I said, okay, let, I still really need to develop. So I, I switched to doing, like, trying to do short stories. But they just didn't interest me. I was interested in the stories I was telling. Because it's like, okay, the minute I, I'm in, I can figure out the character, the setting, the actual story, it's over. You know, and I, I didn't quite like that experience. I like really like getting into it. So I, I developed this. I, what I started to do, I just kept rewriting the novel. You know, I would get two chapters and five chapters and ten chapters and rip it up, start again. And I did this process for years. You know, um, and it's it's very interesting because I'm I'm very critical of myself. So. Even back then, like, there's something, sometimes I would get a scene and say, oh, that one part is really good. You know, that part's going to be in the story one day. But then I can recognize the rest of it is absolute, just not what it needs to be. And, yes, I would, I, that would, get, I would get very down on myself because it's like, wow, now I'm 22, now I'm 24, and I still can't get this thing right, you know. And so, yeah, I got to a point where it's like, am I ever going to be able to get this story right? 
Uh, and so, to, to your point, I I think it's like maybe the maybe not the best way to learn how to write a novel. I think it's far easier or bet, a better practice just to go, you know, do just write short stories, get your style together, get your sense of story down, then move on to a bigger idea as a novel. But I just couldn't get my mind to quite do that. I wasn't engaged doing it that way. But, yeah, yeah, I guess I guess the answer to your question, yes, I ripped up my novel more times than I can count, to be honest with you. It's definitely, like I said, it's, it's, it can be frustrating because, you know, you're putting, especially if your story is a real complex one and you're still, like, haven't figured out, out all your characters because you've got, like, a whole list of them going down. But, you know, as you kept rewriting, I imagine you saw some progress, like, that was going through, like, maybe you... Um, this character got like a certain arc that you didn't see coming beforehand, or maybe like you had more ideas for the essential conflict or idea of the climax. Like you saw some improvements, huh? Oh, oh yeah, and a lot of it was when it came to my style, my writing form, these kind of things. Like how how I was going to carry mood setting from sentence to sentence, paragraph to paragraph. Um, so I was like heavily influenced by. Uh, Arthur's like Robert Lundlum. This is a guy who did like the Bourne series. And, you know, for anyone that's read the Bourne identity, his his opening sequence of that, um, where I, actually it might even be the Bourne uh, ultimatum or whichever the second one is, where he opens up with this huge thing like in China. He's describing... Uh, I think uh, Hong Kong or, 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 or one of these massive cities. And I was just so taken aback by that that that's the type of writing I wanted to do. <laughs> it's, it's really very dense, heady kind of stuff. And I could never quite pull that style off. Uh, and it was kind of figuring out, hey, you can't really copy somebody. you got to find your own style of things. And so every time I rewrite... Um, the novel, yes, I would see, oh, okay, that's more of my voice. That's more what I'm going for. I'm more comfortable communicating the story in that way. Um, so, yeah, I would definitely see improvements as I continue to progress with uh, different uh, edits and rewrites. And that was always what was encouraging to me, is that as I kept going, I would see the improvements. It was never that I wrote a draft and I said, oh, this is not as good as the last one. You know, I would always take time to read other people's stories. I would go on writer's forums, critique other people's work, get my stuff critiqued, and then come back to rewrite it. And every time I went through that process, I definitely saw the improvement. Um, so in that sense, I was always encouraged. Like we were at least we were going slowly, but going in the right direction. Well, see, there you go. You know, as you get you know more and more, I guess what's the word, more depth to writing, and just just begin to grow as the years go by with writing. It's really does. It's kind of uplifting when you can improve and see like the changes made. It's uh, it's just fantastic. Um, but you know, I, I got to tell you this one little thing first. I've been reading. Uh, quite a few books lately, and some of them um, have villains, but other other stories 
like don't have villains. They're not even about like the antagonists themselves. It's about like what the protagonist is going through. Mm. And so when I was reading, when I was reading these stories, it just made me think like there are great stories out there that don't even have an antagonist. They're kind of like a different journey in and of themselves, starring only yeah. with the protagonist and his relationship with others. So, you know, Dan, I got to ask you something. For the stories you've read and the movies and shows you've seen, do you think a story works best, can work um, best with a villain or without one? So my personal taste is that I always love a great protagonist. And even a protagonist, not a protagonist, antagonist, I'm sorry, an antagonist that even works as a villain or maybe even skews more villain. Because I think once you have that in your story, the story tends to be a little more combustible. It tends to be like a bigger idea. And and that's generally, genre speaking, what I kind of lean into more as an audience member. That's kind of what I like. Um, but so, so to, to this point, I used to think that was had to be that had to be every story, big antagonist, bigger than life protagonist, clash, whatever. But then you know, as I as I got older, I came came across shows like Mr. Robot, and that that show is kind of what you're talking about this 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 dive into self exploration of the character. He Elliot Alderson is fighting himself in a in a major sense. And that is compelling. That's what compels you to the story. Yes, there are villains in the story that are antagonists, but it's that internal conflict that's just magnified. And that really changed my per- perception of story, where it's like, oh, wow, that that battle that's going on within the character really, that doesn't have to just be like a side thing. You can really embellish that and make it one of the central features to your story. Even Even... Like, yes, that happens a lot in novel writing. That's one of the beauties of novel writing is that it's much easier to slip into character exploration. But with Mr. Robot, that's obviously a TV show, you know, so it's, it's a visual uh, medium. And they're, they're still able to achieve that. And that really, like, made me go, oh, wow. If you can do that visually in a show like that, then that's something you cannot forget when it comes to screenwriting. So... I just remember that show being very important to me because it kind of did highlight that a bit of that shift of yes, this is why I like I do like the big antagonist, the big villain, but also do not forget that internal uh, struggle in highlighting that because um, if you, if you can mix the two, you have something that's just amazing, like you have in Mr. Robot. So so yeah, I guess where I was on one half, one side of the camp, one. One, in one camp before, I'm, I'm far more fluid now in the, in the kind of stories that I like. You know, it's, it's really good to hear because, you know, it's really, like you say, it's really telling how visually, like, a, a story can just go without an antagonist and teach you, like, this guy is fighting himself more than anybody yeah. else. And the best, one of the best examples I thought of was, you ever seen that movie uh, Manchester by the Sea? Yes, I did. And that was, uh, did it win Best Picture? I know it was up for Best Picture when it came out. So I remember, I think it was up for Best, I think that was out with Moonlight, right? I think it yeah, was, Moonlight I think it was Moonlight Best Picture. Yeah, Moonlight yeah, yeah. Picture, but, but I think no, no, yeah. I think it won 
I might be getting Casey Affleck, but no, I definitely, I definitely saw it. Casey, uh, Casey Affleck won Best Actor, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to say. Casey Affleck won Best Actor. He was phenomenal in that movie. It's easily mm-hmm. one of my favorite performances. But, yeah, it was just, I just thought of that because, you know, as you were describing, I was just like, you know, this guy is fighting, like, his own past, his own, like, yeah. depression. And that's a really rough, that's just such a rough journey to make. You know, it's just so tragic how that movie, you know, is plays out, how the story all plays out. Are you yeah, one for... Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say to, to that point, it's like, yes, yeah, he has this massive internal struggle. And for, like, I forget when they reveal, like, hey, what this, what all this, you know, drama with him and his now, his, his, uh, uh, his ex-wife, what what kind of cause of all that... I, I kind of don't want to spoil the movie if anyone hasn't seen it, but yeah, then you you ha- they present this character that has all this internal uh, conflict, and then finally you get the reveal, and yeah, you're right, that is the movie. What is this guy going through? And then once you see why he's going through it, it's like wow, it's just so horrible that yeah, it just it just makes the whole movie. So I think yeah, that's a really good example of when. Yeah, there doesn't have to be an antagonist, and you can have this incredible drama, this cre- incredible internal exploration to make a movie stand out and even pop with conflict, even though there's no external force kind of causing that. Mm, that's so true. That's so true. And But now let's just switch back into you know, from – Going to now right into full on screenwriting because as we obviously we've talked about the obvious differences between those two things, mm-hmm. but one thing that's that m- must be talked about is your focus on on uh, story and plot because I was watching this I was watching this uh, YouTuber um, called uh, Filmento if you've ever heard of him he uh, analyzes. Yeah, analyzes. If anybody doesn't know, he analyzes uh, films to say, show how why they were good or why they were bad. Definitely follow him. He's got really good content. But, you know, it, one of the stories I saw was his take on how to create, like, the perfect plot. And he says that characters and, like, plot pretty much go hand in hand. They're not, like, two separate entities. And it's crucial, having good characters, to have a equally good plot. So when you're, say, plotting out your plot, what's, what's something that you always, like, start with? Do you think of the end or, the like, the middle or just the very beginning with, like, those first few sentences? So I t- my mind tends, tends to work uh, when it comes to story in peaks. So I always think of, okay, what are we moving towards? So what, what's the big peak in the story? What, what's the moment where everything... You're, you're as an audience member, you're going, oh wow, this is like the big, not even so much the finale, but a point that kind of showcases the story, you know. And I think that, that that's how a story kind of flashes into my mind. Uh, just 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 to uh, provide a better picture, maybe it's a moment where, you know, the antagonist meets the protagonist for the first time, or some or something like that. Like if if someone. Uh, I, I, I'll go back to a novel that I recently read, which is uh, uh, Neuromancer. It's this big science fiction thing, and the the the, the author talks about uh, 
the moment where that moment where the antagonist meets the protagonist for the first time. And, you know, it's it's very it's a very subtle moment. You know, it's like basically like it happens like in a phone booth. That's not giving too much away, but and he said it's his favorite moment from the whole story. And that's kind of how my mind will work. Just I'll be thinking about that moment when I'm when I'm conceiving a story. Um and if those moments, if those peaks of the story work for me, then I get to a point. Of, okay, let me let me try to just write the first thing, you know. Uh, and so, to your point about character and plot, I always start with characters when it comes to presenting a story. So even though my mind is working in like in the peaks of how the plot's going to really pop when it gets going. To get an audience in this story, I really then just focus on characters because I tend not, I don't really care about, if I'm, as an audience member, I don't care about your plot, but I care about the people involved in the plot. So I'm really big on to pulling the audience into the characters first. So that's always where I start um, any type of story I do. Like I, I don't really try to bring much plot to begin with, you know, because I feel that can be lost. So it, I, I'm a bit – so I have this kind of varied approach where, yes, I, I, I work first in these big plot moments in my head, but then once I actually get to writing, then it's like, okay, how do I get my audience to accept my characters as quickly as possible? Mm, interesting, interesting. So then there's another thing that comes with – you know, the plot and that story. So we both know story and plot are two sides of the same coin, but they can be separated, which could um, be detrimental to uh, the movie or books you're writing. So, you know, when you're thinking of, like, what is happening in terms of that's the plot and, like, why it's happening or what's really needed here, like, how do you balance those two out to tell the best story you can possibly tell? So I tend to work, if, if as a writer, I like bigger concepts. So I like the big sci-fis. Um, I like action if it's done right. Uh, so when it, com- when it comes to that, like I always want to make sure I'm working with a, a, a good idea, an idea that really pops to me. Uh and so, once I have an idea that that's a that that's an idea that I think pops for me, I hope it's going to pop for the audience. So, I just want to present maybe a trick or that idea to the audience, so they know, oh, okay, he's working with this. This is where it's kind of going, right? And then once once the audience is assured that okay, this is this is going someplace that I like. Now we can get into the plot, exactly how they're going to get to these, uh, to these ideas, these big places in the story. Um, and that, I think that's where, I think that's maybe the hardest part, I think, when it comes to storytelling. Because most ideas have been dealt with. But it's that plotting of the idea, how you walk an audience's mind through the idea into these big points in, in the story. And when it comes to dealing with this idea that really makes something work. I mean, I think one of the interesting things that film has going for it, 
to be honest with you, is the trailer. Because novels don't really have that. Novels, you have a synopsis, but you have to actually sit there. you got to read it. And your mind has to do some work there because you have to interpret what you're reading in, in, in that kind of sense. Meanwhile, like a, uh, a trailer can – everyone's seen the same images, right? When you're reading a synopsis, you, you have to create images in your head. And if you have the wrong images, then you're not really going to pick up the novel. Part of that has to do with the, the author. They have to try to make sure the audience is seeing the right images. But you only have a synopsis, you know? And sometimes the writer don't even write the synopsis. <laughs> you know, it's the publishing house. So the fact that movies have trailers to present these ideas and everyone gets the same image, you can go, oh, okay, that idea seems interesting. Now let me watch the movie to see how it's actually plotted out, you know? And if the idea presents well enough, people are generally going to sit through at least a portion of it to see how the plotting is. So I, I think it's very interesting that you put them, you put them as, as different things, story and plot, because they really are, you know? Your story is your idea, but the plot is how you walk someone through the idea. Uh, and, and, and just make, a, I guess, a bit, another example is something like Squid Games. I think that's why Squid Games became so popular. It's because they presented such a good and clean idea, which is, hey, what happens if you're an adult having to play a, a child's game for, with, with your life on the line? <laughs> this, I mean, immediately, like, I don't have to know anything about Squid Games. I go, oh, that's an interesting concept. I want to I see that, you know? Like, yeah, I wonder what I, how I would react in that scenario. You know, and I think the trailer just kind of by itself made, I mean, it's obviously plotted well. Don't get me wrong, but that trailer got so many eyeballs just like, oh, that's an interesting story. That's an interesting idea. Um, so, so yeah, yeah. I just, my, the, the, I guess to wrap up my response, I, I've gone a bit on this, which is, but getting the, I make sure the idea is good. It's very important to me. I need to know that it's going someplace that I'm interested in. And then I get into the plot, which is, okay, I act, how to exactly walk someone's mind through this story in an entertaining and unpredictable way. I see. Okay. But, you know, when you brought up the uh, movie trailers, I just got me thinking because there have been a lot of movie trailers uh, in recent years that have just, like, I'm sure turned a lot of people off, turned me yeah. off, especially because yeah. is, there's some that, there's some trailers that just tell the whole, that's just tell the whole story that you haven't even watched the movie yet, and it's just like and it's just such a downer because it's like what is what do I find this movie really interesting, but I don't feel like watching because you just spoiled everything for me. Now I can just figure out where it goes. So that's like one of the downsides of movie trailers. So when you see yeah. when you look at trailers like like where do you think they could be like improving or like better uh, attracting their audiences? So I think it's a bit of an issue that Hollywood's going through. Because I think they're trying to compete with, you know, TikTok and YouTube and streaming services and the variety of entertainment that everyone has that they they I think they're really trying to almost 
do the job of walking someone's mind through the story, in a sense. They want you to kind of experience the movie in that short, bite-sized amount. So, therefore, you have some kind of attachment to it, right? And then with that attachment, they're hoping that you would then watch the full movie. Um, instead of just re- – because a bit of it is like, yes, you have to rely on the filmmaker, which, hey, let me just present kind of the general direction of this thing and then trust the filmmaker that once someone actually starts watching it, they can't stop watching it. And that's hard to do. This is why, like, if you watch, like, a Christopher Nolan trailer, he gets so much um, uh, leeway. He gets so much credibility that, hey, we're not going to show you much in the movie at all. We're going to give you a few little things, and we're going to let Nolan take care of the rest. I feel more filmmakers not only deserve that uh, treatment, but I think it would benefit movies in general if they were given that treatment because it is a problem that you they are giving away the movie. Um, and I always find it very weird when they do that with something like one of these huge tentpole action movies. I say Black Panther, you know. Uh, they would literally give away the whole movie. Who's Black Panther and all this when it's like everyone's going to see this movie. <laughs> you don't need to sell it that hard. Just give us a little bit and just, <laughs> we're going to go see it. So it, it's yeah. it's a weird thing that's happening. Um, I do hope they wind up pulling back on that because people that that care about watching movies and film, they're, they're going to, you, they can't get what they, they can't enjoy that experience. Or rather, they're not going to get, validation from watching a TikTok or a 10-minute YouTube video. No, they want to watch a full-length feature or a TV show and get the full breadth of character and story. So I, I think I think Hollywood needs to be less concerned with trying to compete with, or trying to win over people that want that short, bite-sized entertainment, you know. Uh, but at the same time, what I've done personally, I've stopped really watching most trailers. Or I'll watch, like, the first 30 seconds of a trailer. And then, okay, if they present to me a concept that I like, I stop watching trailers. So, okay, you sold me. So, I kind of, I almost self-regulate. So, so maybe that's what we have to do moving forward. Um, because it's going to be hard for it's It's kind of hard for me to think that Hollywood goes, oh, we're not trying to get this, trying to compete for the person that likes the bite-sized entertainment, I guess. You know, I think they're always going to try to pull in that audience. So I kind of let them do that and just get the first 30 seconds, get the concept, and then I just I just move on. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, that makes a lot of sense because we are living in sort of a reality where people are just feeding for that sort of bite-sized. One person called it that dopamine hit where yes, we're just yes. getting, yeah, so we're just getting like a few seconds of, Enter, like entertainment. That's why one of the reasons I myself can never be on TikTok. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, what I'm saying? but you know, another thing that's a bit of a problem is that Hollywood tends to like recycle a lot of already existing franchises and try to bring out like, hey, we're never going to come to this because it's got you know Star Wars or uh, Top Gun. I mean, we just saw with Top Gun Maverick, people 
um, were drawn to that, or I'm sure a lot, most of us have already seen like the first Top Gun or uh, those that came after, and then Black Panthers. So many, so many, where we're just like, kind of get it now. Granted, Black Top Gun Maverick did a really good job, and people say like this is a return to cinema, so that's good news. But still, it can't help but notice that this came. This isn't anything new. This has come out since the '80s, and this, there was a lot of other things that have come out a long time before then. So. People are complaining. My point is, people are complaining about a lack of originality. Um, Dan, getting into screenwriting, how would you um, bring change to this uh, sort of mindset that people are feeling in terms of Hollywood? Well, I, for one, I can't really blame Hollywood for operating in that way um, when it comes to just dealing with IPs. Because that seems to be the only thing the audience and, like, the general public's responding to right now. Uh, so something like Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, right, might be the, the best movie this, in 2022. And it did well. I think it made maybe $200 million, $300 million worldwide, something like that. I don't know the exact numbers. So, it, I mean, it did well for something that they shot for $50 million bucks. The problem is, like, that movie should have, I mean, if some of this stuff is getting, let's say Top Gun Maverick. Top Gun Maverick is a great movie. I'm not dissing Top Gun Maverick. But that made over a billion dollars, I think. Everything, everywhere, all at once should have made a billion dollars. It is written on that level. It's better than most of these tentpole action movies and all that. But because it has no brand, because the audience doesn't see it, and go, oh, yeah, right, right, that thing from the 90s or that thing in the early 2000s or that thing that's attached to this uh, comic book or novel or whatever, they don't think it matters. They don't think it's worth them going out to theaters to go see. Um, and so, again, that's not a Hollywood issue um, because clearly this movie was produced by, by uh, the Daniels, uh, which are great filmmakers, that is a Hollywood thing. That's a Hollywood-produced uh, movie. But the audience isn't responding to it the way they would a Thor movie or something like that. So I can't really blame Hollywood for going, oh, wow, we, 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 we can have a movie that's not even a, not even a, a third as good as everything, all there, everything everywhere all at once. But it can make three times the money or something like that. Only because it's attached to something. Only because it has IP. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how we would get out of that per se, because great movies are being made. Audiences just aren't responding to them. Uh, I don't know how you fix that as a screenwriter. I particularly try not to focus on that too much. I do think because. Obviously, if you're if you're in any position to go ahead and write something that they give you fifty million dollars, a hundred million dollars to do, right? Where you're trying to make a blockbuster, you're in a pretty elevated place in your career and within Hollywood. And so, yeah, my my head doesn't live in that space too often. You know, if I were to be in that area then it'd be, it, I'd have to try to write something personally that kind of manipulates IP 
where the audience has some recognition of it, but it doesn't really, I suppose, lean into the IP, if that makes any type of sense. I'm not even sure, quite sure how to put it, where, you know, you almost hint that it could be attached to IP just to get them there, but then it really not have much of that IP. It's just maybe present its own original story. Kind of like, I guess, I guess an example of this would be a movie Michael B. Jordan did recently. Uh, it's, it wound up being like this action movie or something where it's like the, basically the IP is Rainbow Six, which is like a video game. But the movie doesn't have to ha doesn't have much to deal with that. But at the end, it's, you get that reveal that oh, it's attached to something, right? And I thought that was kind of a clever way of dealing with IP. Um, whether or not that movie is successful or not, I, I don't know. That's a different that's a different uh, conversation, I guess. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. Um, it wasn't any chance. I think I saw it on like Prime Video. Was it on Prime Video? Yeah, um, I think Amazon Amazon produced it. Yeah. Yeah, it was like one of, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I, I don't have the exact name for it, but yeah, I know Michael B. Jordan was in that one. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you have a good point there that a lot of people, I keep telling people like, hey, you know, original stuff is still being made. You're just not looking in the right places. So yeah, yeah. I do, I do definitely, you have a point there. That's why I love like A24 and their mm -hmm. films. They're that really good original original content. So that's people check out A twenty four films. They're they're really good. And Absolutely. So let's just take a step from like you know like the Hollywood and everything because now I just want to get back to a little bit more on you, Dan. So you um, have come a long way to where you are now, and you've you dove into a lot of different um, ventures, one of them including uh, poker, which you told me about. And I want to hear, and I want to hear about that and a little bit more of your experiences. First off, of all of like the jobs and all the um, pa different paths you've taken, are those like reflected? Do you think in uh, in your writing and in your stories? Oh yeah, absolutely. So. I think that's one that's one of the cool things about coming to LA. Like I'm 33 now, you know, and I could never imagine coming to this town in my 20s because I I just would have been too heavily influenced by what people are doing here and their taste and that kind of stuff. So, you know, working I I used to work uh, at a university hospital in Philadelphia. Um and just just like as like uh, a file clerk kind of kind of thing and you know, that that taught me certain things about, you know, I guess organizational hierarchy and how the doorman's treated as opposed to uh, uh, the boss or the CEO, whoever's in charge, right, um, and how people interact with different types of people depending on status and reputation, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, that's, that, that gave me an experience. I used to also, like, uh, at one point I had, I was selling, uh, like, uh, Verizon Internet in Walmart, right? And so that, that was an experience. So I'm used to being told no a lot. Like, you go up and try to sell somebody anything in Walmart, they're going to tell you to go fuck off, okay? <laughs> and so I had that experience on too many occasions to count. 
So, like, no, when someone tells me no, it doesn't really bother me. You know, I'm like Teflon when it comes to that. Uh, playing poker taught me how to read people, and not only that, but then how, how to handle a, what we call a variance. When you do everything right, and you still lose. You know, mathematics saying, hey, you're making the right play, but sometimes something happens, an ace rolls off at the final card, as we would say, the river, and you lose a lot of money. And there's nothing you can do about that. And so you have to learn to take that and just keep moving, keep operating in a way that is beneficial to you, uh, to you uh, and that's going to yield results in the long, in the long run and to not get discouraged. It also teaches you that, hey, if you're losing, right, over a long period of time, so you have a pretty good sample size, you need to then figure out, hey, is there something you're doing wrong? You know, so it teaches you, one, not to be sketched out by bad occurrences. And two, it teaches you when you can't always use the excuse of, oh, I'm just unlucky, right? It teaches you to really peel past that and figure out if you're doing something fundamentally wrong, right? And so I think poker on that level teaches a lot of discipline. So I find I've, I've had all of these kind of uh, uh, experiences and moments that have shaped me into a person that I can better handle this Hollywood, L.A. environment. Whereas before, yeah, I just I, I would not be able to handle all this or deal with any of it. So, yeah, yeah, I've had a lot of different experiences kind of lead to this point. That's incredible. It's so, it's, so, it's so funny to me how all these different places can each, like, teach, like, different lessons that just round up to creating something, just creating the most self-improvement, mm. you know, whether it's patience, humility, discipline, and just, of course, optimism, because especially yeah. in especially in writing, you gotta you gotta be an optimist. Because Yeah, and and to that point, like so <laughs> when I did the job, you know, selling uh Xfinity or internet in Walmart, right? So what it was is like so people that do that are subcontracted out generally and so I would show up at this one place and it's like a group of salespeople. Let's say let's say I think maybe it was like twenty five of us. And then we had the, our boss who would come out, and about hour, we had an hour and a half of training every day where they would get your mindset in the right place to go do this. Because they know what's about to happen. They know random people, we're, we're dressed like in suits, random people in, 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 sweat, in sweats are going to come up to you and say, I'll tell you to go fuck off, right? <laughs> and so they know they're going to lose a lot of employees. So they were very diligent about hey, make sure everyone's mindset is ready for this. So we would have an hour and a half of training of not only salesmanship, but how to deal with rejection. And I thought it was the corniest thing at the time. Like, I'm like, wow, these people are crazy. We're just selling Internet. It's not that deep. But then I started to listen and really having to apply what they're saying, otherwise you're not going to be successful going to do this. And then I really, I, 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 when they're talking about, Dealing with no and dealing with everyone around you having negative energy 
you have to maintain positive positivity. You have to be unaffected by how anybody else's mood is around you. That's essentially what they were what they were teaching us. And that that was a revolutionary concept to me. That hey, yeah, I am the author of my own mood. Other people you don't you do not let they don't rub off on you, you rub off on them. You know, and and that change of of a perspective was revolutionary with, when it comes to me being here in, in L.A. So, like, I, I, I have, you know, screenwriter friends, and they get so bummed out about no and hearing that. Me? <laughs> hey, at least, at least these, these no's are coming from Hollywood, at least. At least the no's are coming from film festivals. I've been told no in Walmart, and that doesn't bother me. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, it's been... That 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 experience has been invaluable for me. Yeah. There you go, because that's that's another thing that's especially especially crucial for artists. Period. Mm-hmm. Learning how to take no for an answer, as they say, one yes beats a thousand no's. Yeah. And absolutely. But don't get don't get us wrong, people. It's still a really arduous process. It's. Mm-hmm. So I'd be wondering, like, damn, who's going to say yes? But Dan will say it. So just keep your head up, people. And, you know, Dan, that's – I still am amazed at how just Walmart – Walmart is, like, teaching you this <laughs> important important lesson. Yeah, but, and so, so, again, it made me – I'll give one one example – one last example, I guess, about the Walmart stuff, which is, I remember I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm, I'm in the store and I'm, my sales numbers are horrible at this point. Maybe I'm in the job for three weeks at this point. I can't sell, I can't sell fish, a fish water, basically. You know, everyone's just no, 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 no. And I'm, I'm, because they were very uh, transparent about who was making sales and who wasn't. They were, they had like a leaderboard. Like, hey, these people make the sales, and these people don't. And so I'm in there and just thinking, man, okay, I got to turn this around. Like, I can't – I hate being bad at something. Like, I'm a very competitive person. And so that's okay. I started to work on this positivity thing. And I remember, so a a, a woman – I would just not care about selling anybody. It was just about me maintaining my positivity. And let me do that throughout an eight-hour shift. And so I remember one time a woman walks up, and I'm like, hey, how you doing? Uh, how's your day? And then she just darts into an aisle. And I go, I'm not going to be affected. I say, okay, you have a good day. Take care. She doesn't say anything to me the whole time, but I'm just like, just go. And then she creeps back out of the aisle, and she looks at me, and she goes, oh, you have a good day too. And then she kept going. And I I was so happy with that because my positivity pulled her backward, you know. I don't have to sell you anything, but I just wanted to make sure that people had a better day once they uh, encountered me. So, yeah, I think I'm I'm far more of a person now that's into the process. It's not so much where it it ends up going because, like, you know, I'm just in love with L.A., 
I'm one of these people I come out here and the first time I was stuck in gridlock traffic, I'm like smiling ear to ear because it's like, oh, I'm here. I'm in L.A. I am fucking going for it, you know? <laughs> and so I just love the process of being here. And I think if anyone is, is interested in, in pursuing this, it's definitely worth it as long as you're okay with the process. The process needs to be enough in a sense. You know, you, if you're out here waiting to get that big yes and all this and that big mansion, then this is going to be a hard life for you. <laughs> but if you're, if you're willing just to, hey, be out here and enjoy it and enjoy the process of, of, of you know, going for your goals in life, it, there's nothing like it. I mean, I've been having a blast so far. And it's part of the because yes, I'm just okay with the process of going through it. I love to hear that, man. I absolutely love to hear that, and I'm happy to know you're having the time of your life out mm -hmm. here in the great city of L.A. So <laughs> keep doing you, man. Keep um, going through that process because yeah, it's it's there for people if they're willing to, you know, go that length and face everything that comes with it. So you know. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes episode 22 of the upcoming. I just want to give another huge shout out to Mr. Dan Asbury. Come on, people. Let's give this man <laughs> and right here. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate being on. This was a lot of fun, man. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. So, all right, ladies and gentlemen, that is it for episode 22 of the upcoming. And just be sure to... Uh, continue to follow us for more amazing content. We will be moving on to different uh, streaming platforms, not just Spotify. We're done with just being Spotify. So uh, be sure to um, follow us on uh, social media on Instagram at the underscore upcoming podcast. We'll be giving the announcements there. And, uh, yeah, just continue to, um, continue to follow. Thank you all for listening right now. It's just been an amazing journey. And, if uh, you weren't there for episode 21, happy new year, you know, 2023. Let's make this the best year possible. All right. So that concludes it, ladies and gentlemen, and good night. Thank you for tuning in to the upcoming. If you like this, please sure to follow us on Spotify for more amazing content. The best is yet to come. Take care, everybody.